Good morning. It's so good to see you here this morning. Um, there's something about worship that can be such a healing and comforting experience, isn't it? Um, now, at the risk of being, you know, joking too quickly after we've had a somber moment, I just have to make a few corrections to what Andrew said earlier in announcements. You don't make any interest, right, in the savings account for, t- you know. So that's not great. And then second, um, I don't know if the math of four plus kids becomes easier. I've got three, but I haven't tested that out. But we'll see. We'll see how far you go with that. And then lastly, this isn't anything to do with Andrew. I am going to, I just didn't have the boldness to do this, but I, uh, I'm growing my beard so that I can shave it for that stash and I must mustache for next week. And this is the most faith building thing I've ever had to do because I hate it. And um, I'm sure I will shave Sunday morning right before I run the race. And then we have our service at 11. I'll bring a razor and I'll shave before Sunday because all the spiritual power would be sapped from me if I was wearing a mustache while I conducted services. But I will do it out of solidarity and such is my commitment. All right. We find ourselves today. Oh, thank you, Betty. Thank you. We find ourselves today, and you may not have thought of this, but we find ourselves seven weeks removed from Easter. In the church calendar, this is the, uh, the week of the church in which we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus, something miraculous and magnificent happened. The Spirit of God descended and came on a group uh, of men and women who had gathered at a large house in the courtyard outside the house, to gather and remember Jesus. And as they did so, the Spirit of God descended on them and the church was born. Through the sermon that Peter preached to that group of 120 men and women, he preached it in a public place. And so it wasn't just the 120 men and women. It was the people walking by the street who heard what he said. And his message went something like this. (laughs) Just 50 days ago, the Son of God rose from the dead. Some of us in attendance here were complicit in his death, in his putting him to death. And now, we who killed the author of life stand at the precipice and have a choice. Will we repent or will we not? And many repented. 3,000. And the church was born. And the message of Christianity, of the church, began to spread. And the church, which is an expanding group of people made up of those who believe that Jesus is the coming, you know, crucified, resurrected, and coming again, Son of God, was launched. And so once a year, seven Sundays removed, approximately 50 days after we've celebrated Easter, we pause in our services from whatever series we're a part of, and we just finished one on Jonah last week. And we remember the power and the coming of the Holy Spirit who indwells all of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the night before Jesus' arrest that uh, preceded his crucifixion, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, and he said some interesting things there. He said, I am going away, and when I go away, I will send to you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will come and he will remind you of all things that I have said to you. Of course, this was alarming to the disciples, and they said, how could you go away? And Jesus says, it is better for you that I leave, because when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will empower you. The Holy Spirit is God. It is God come to earth to dwell within his people and in his church. 
It is the power of God at work in our lives, the lives of all of us who follow Jesus and who have been transformed by the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And yet, the Holy Spirit is an intensely frustrating concept at times, isn't it? It feels so um, experiential and touchy-feely. And I'm a guy, and so I have the emotional you know, aptitude of a rock. So it always hasn't been very easy for me to understand and experience the Holy Spirit. It has always been a frustrating thing. It's felt like a touchy-feely thing, an emotional, a heavily reliant, uh, experiential type of thing. I've talked to many who have had incredible intimacy. Uh, They claimed with the Holy Spirit, and I do not deny their claims. I can remember one particular guy and one particular girl who I went to Bible college with, and they were just so flighty. You know, oh, God has been so good, and I'm not saying they're bad. Maybe they had something I didn't have, but I could never understand where they were going. I don't know if they understood where they were going, right? They were just in the clouds, you know? Um, I'm not denying their experiences, but their experience has not been my experience. And yet, the talk of a fuller and deeper intimacy with the Holy Spirit is something that I don't know of any Christian who's truly experienced God that wouldn't want that. I don't know that I haven't had that. I would just say the experience that I've had with the Holy Spirit has looked a lot different than some of the other people. But, The question I think that I want to delve into this morning, and which I can probably only incompletely answer for you, because I can only answer it to you to the basis of what I I have experienced, is how do we experience the Holy Spirit? How can we have his power in our lives? I was always taught in seminary, and I've always thought it myself, that the role of the preacher is to give his or her congregation a greater insight into what it looks like for them personally (laughs) to follow the Lord, you know? What it looks like for me to follow Jesus. It is not enough for you to come to church and just hear me spout uh, information about the Bible, right? Because spiritual transformation is not about just acquiring more knowledge. That happens as a byproduct. But spiritual transformation is that process by which we hear, respond to the Word of God, and then we begin to live it out, In this way, the preacher, like anyone else in life, can never impart anything to somebody else that they themselves have not experienced. And so, as I speak this morning, on the morning of Pentecost, an intensely important morning, my my goal with you is to relate to you, on the basis of both the Word of God and my experience, how the Holy Spirit can transform us both as individuals and how the Holy Spirit can transform us as a corporate body, as a group of people who meet together together, to proclaim and to affirm and to live in the light of the glorious news that Jesus Christ is the crucified, resurrected, and coming again Son of God. This morning, our roadmap is simple. I just simply want to share with you what it looks like to experience the Holy Spirit as an individual and as a corporate body. And so let's jump right in. If you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. And if you're following along with us in one of the Bibles that we provide, the the section of Scripture that we're looking at is on page 927. Page 927. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says something intensely interesting. I remember having to memorize these verses when I was a, a teenager as part of our church program. 
And what he says there is extremely radical. Perhaps you're familiar with these verses. Perhaps you are not. Nonetheless, I want you to hear again what they say. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who you have in you, whom you have received from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, and therefore honor God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. What Paul is saying here is that as individuals, we are dwelling places for the Holy Spirit. As individuals, we are the dwelling place of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you and that I have the ability, and for those of us who've placed our faith in God, the ability to be indwelt by God himself. In fact, one of my professors in seminary, I don't even remember which one, but one of my professors in seminary said one of the unique things about humanity itself is that to be made in the image of God means we bear with ourselves, in ourselves, the ability to be indwelt by God. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful thought? The ability to be indwelt by God. And what he continued to say, which is kind of a scary thought, the more we go away from God, the more we lose our humanity. And for those who uh, reject God completely, that experience of hell, which is a real reality, is the experience where our humanity is completely torn away and we have no humanity left. Why is this? Because hell is the place where God is not and you have no more humanity. You're just selfishness, right? And don't we talk like this, you know? Don't we talk like this? They've lost their humanity, you know, this phrase. What do we mean by this? They have no sense of kindness or goodness. You see? They've lost their humanity. As humans, whether you've placed your trust in God or not, we all bear the image of God, which means that we have the ability to be indwelt by God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have this ability, but not all experience the Holy Spirit. Not all of us even, we're told, experience the Holy Spirit at equal levels, for there are things that we can do that will stunt our experience of the Holy Spirit. A couple years ago, I read a book. It was by a man named Andrew Murray, and it was called Experiencing the Holy Spirit, which I love that title because it is exactly what the book is about. So clear, you know? He could have called his book on the Holy Spirit Fuel and nobody would know what it's about, but he called it Experiencing the Holy Spirit, right? That's really good. Andrew Murray was a South African pastor and uh, writer, and he died about 100 years ago. He died at almost 90 years old. So Andrew Murray wrote this book, Experiencing the Holy Spirit, and he gave us four ways, four things that we need to do to experience the Holy Spirit. I love his book because it is so accessible to all of us, right? It is not like I'm up here telling you um, <laughs> to experience the Holy Spirit. You, you, I can't tell you what to do. You'll just know it when it happens. That's just not that helpful, right? The experience of the Holy Spirit will look different for all of us, but to experience the Holy Spirit in our lives, according to the Bible and to Andrew Murray, we need to do four things, and they're going to be very easy to see once I start speaking through them, and here they are. The first thing you need to be able to do to experience the Holy Spirit is you need to acknowledge your sin. You need to acknowledge your sin. 
Andrew Murray says in his book that your experience of the Holy Spirit can never, ever, ever, ever go deeper in your life than the acknowledgement of your own sinfulness. That the Holy Spirit can never give a deeper insight into your life than you will have an insight into your own sin. Why is this? Because sin is not a list of things that we should and shouldn't do. It it doesn't end with like, it's not an arbitrary list of things that we should do and shouldn't do, you know? It may feel like that sometimes when we read the Old Testament, right? Don't eat shrimp, but you can't eat bee, you know, sheep or whatever, you know? But the Old Testament's complex, and we're not dealing with that this morning. All the laws and the stuff of the Old Testament, my belief is, was ways where the Old Testament people of God were instructed by God and understood from God how in their day and their way they were to live before God in a way that would please him. And now things have changed. We clearly know this. The elements between the Old and New Testament are hard to understand. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to establish for you is that the Bible is not a rule book of listing, telling us what to do and what not to do. If it was we would be going around all the time as the morality police, checking each other and making sure that we're doing things just right, right? Maybe uh, I grew up at a camp. They didn't do this when I was there, but they would tell the stories of the camp they grew out for modesty's sake. They would have a ruler and the older ladies of the camp would go to the young girls of the camp. And if they weren't wearing shorts that were long enough, they'd put the ruler to their hip and make sure they're short enough, right? Or not short enough. (laughs) That's a different kind of camp. They were making sure that they were long enough, right? <laughs> Short enough. That would be like the teenage guys setting the rules, yeah? Not me, not me. But uh, you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes Christianity can feel like that. Like we've got our rulers and we're going to all of our friends like, I'm doing it right, are you doing it right? That's just a, that's just a terrible life. It's a terrible life for the person you got the ruler to. It's a terrible life for the person holding the ruler. I mean it. And we're in church this morning, so we're more likely to be the ruler holders than the people getting the ruler held up to us, right? But there's probably some of us who have been experienced, have experienced both. Now, Andrew Murray says we can't experience the Holy Spirit any deeper than the insight we have into our own sin. Why is this? Because our sin, sin actions is not a list of do's and don'ts. Sin, by definition, is anything that goes against the character of God. Now, that's an that's a, uh, intellectual definition. It's not a concrete one. Here's what we mean by that. God himself, who is both justice and love equally, never does things that destroy and hurt other people, right? So sin, by definition, does not go against his character, and therefore... Sin, by definition, is anything we do to destroy others. Destroy others, right? Why can we not experience the Holy Spirit when we don't have insight into our own sin? Because we're around, we're going around destroying things, ourselves and others, until we see where the problem is until we see that our own sinfulness is what's causing separation, not just from God, of course, from Him, but from each other. And from him, we cannot experience the power of the Holy Spirit. But Andrew Murray says that not only do we need to acknowledge our own sinfulness, 
But this acknowledgement of our own sinfulness grows into the second thing that we must do to experience the Holy Spirit, and we can't without it. And that is a heart of repentance. <laughs> Have you ever been around something that someone that says, yeah, that wasn't right, and then you... You fully, have the, you fully get the picture from them. That, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but I fully intend on doing that again, right? They may not say it like that, but come on, we, a lot of us, you've had kids. A lot of you have had kids that are a lot older than my kids. They grow out. Yeah, Daddy, I'm sorry I did that, but I fully intend to do it again, right? You cannot experience the Holy Spirit if you are in patterns of sin, which, remember, are not arbitrary do's and don'ts. They are things destroying you, destroying others, and destroying your relationship with God. And you cannot experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life if you are doing those things and you're like, yeah, I really shouldn't be, but I like them, so I'm going to continue. You cannot experience the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. A heart of repentance. A heart of repentance says... I am sorry for what I've done, not because that means I've got a consequence, but because I've hurt you. Because I've hurt you. Heart of repentance. Remember two weeks ago, we looked at the, uh, the king of Nineveh, and we talked about his heart of repentance. We have done what is wrong. And let us put on the sackcloth and ashes. Let us fast. We're even going to have our animals fast and wear sackcloth. And maybe God will if he chooses. Maybe I'm wrong, but you know what I read into Jonah chapter 3, the heart of the king? If he doesn't choose, we deserve it. If he doesn't choose, we deserve it. The heart of the king of Nineveh, as far as what I'm reading in Jonah 3, is... We are going to repent because we are sorry not to get out of the consequences. We will take the consequences if they come. And if God is merciful, we will praise him. That's a heart of repentance. A heart of repentance. I am sorry. Not because now I can't have a cookie after dinner. Or not because I can't play video games. Or not because now my wife's not going to stay with me. Right? I, I, I jumped really big. I went from really small consequences to like the stuff we actually deal with. Really quick there. But I really love a cookie after dinner. I rarely get them because I don't bake cookies all that often. But I need to not do so. So anyway, you understand what I mean. A heart of repentance. But a heart of repentance leads us to do the third thing that it takes to follow God, right? We are following, we are finally getting a deeper insight into our own sinfulness. We're getting... A, a true remorse, a true grief over what we've done. And the third thing we need to do if we're going to experience the Holy Spirit is we need to start self-denying ourselves those things which we've done in the past that hurt. We are sorry, and now we self-deny. We move in another direction. Said in another way, the way Andrew Murray quotes in his book, where he says, God cannot fill you with the Holy Spirit if you are so busy filling yourself with other things. Does this make sense? God cannot fill you with his Holy Spirit if you are so busy filling yourself with other things. What he means is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. If anyone would come after me, right? Do you know this? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. And for whoever wants to save his life, they will lose it. 
but ever, whoever loses his life for my sake, they will save it. It's almost like in our broken humanity, we long for things other than God and we find those things to be unsatisfying. Does this make sense? We long for things more than we long for God because we are trying to satisfy an appetite that the things besides God can never, ever, ever fill. And so we find ourselves hungry. We need to self-deny. Andrew Murray says in his book that denying ourselves must become the first and the most necessary part of each and every day, right? Where we say to ourselves, my heart yearns for this, but this will destroy me. And so I will pursue this, right? Self-denial. And then fourth, Andrew Murray says, once we've learned to self-deny, then we must learn to undistractedly seek after God. Undistractedly seek after God, right? It's an acknowledgement of sin, a heart of repentance, a self-denying spirit. But now we are not only self-denying but and not doing things that we did before, but now we are filling our time with the things of God and filling the things of our heart with things that are now good. Undistracted, seeking after God. And so often when we seek after God, what happens is we're in a place of pain or difficulty. And so we go through this process, right? And we're so quick, if we're not careful, to self-medicate our difficulties, our disappointments, to self-medicate them with all kinds of things. Some people do it with, you know, incredibly destructive things that everybody recognizes, like sex and, and drugs and alcohol, and others people do it with Netflix and video games on their phone, right? But it's all self-medicating. Some people do it with reading and movie watching and TV watching. I had one week, it was probably four years ago, where I got really into this show on Netflix, and I watched it, and I watched like 30 hours in one week, right? And I'd never felt like more garbage in my life. And then I looked up and I saw the average TV intake for the person of, in America is 34 hours a week. And I thought, how are we living? You know, how are we even surviving? You know, we would be just like zombies everywhere. But we have to undistractedly seek after God. I'm not telling you I'm an expert at all these things. I am not standing up before you and saying, sometimes I don't seek after other things more than I seek after God. I do it more often than I'd like to admit. I'm telling you, that the Spirit of God, which has been so foundational in my life, I do not experience His presence. When I have sin in my life that I choose not to acknowledge, I do not experience His presence. When I do not have a heart of grief over the things that I've done that are wrong, who have hurt me, hurt my family, hurt people in my life that I care about, and then who keep me away from God, like Adam and Eve in the garden after their sin, who run into the bushes, because they don't want to go for their daily walk with God, right? And I do not experience him. When I don't self-deny and when I don't undistractedly seek after God. When I have done these things, it's not like, uh, it's not like the Holy Spirit is this magical force that we, uh, we do certain things, these four things, and then all of a sudden we get the result that we want. You know, it doesn't work like this. The Holy Spirit is not a power, but a person, right? 
And the way that we experience him is different. It's not only different per person, it's different for each of us at different points in our lives. Sometimes I've done these four things and my experience of the Holy Spirit has been ecstasy and joy. Sometimes I've done it and it's been like steady integrity. And sometimes I have done these things and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life feels like agony because my heart yearns for things that I cannot have and disappointments that don't appear to be coming true. And we are always in a better place if we pursue after our dreams with integrity because if our dreams go beyond our integrity, our desire is for our dreams and not for God, right? What happens in our life when the things that we had in our mind as preferred futures don't look like they're coming to reality? Are you willing to give up those things so that you might have God and allow God to reshape the picture of your dreams and your hopes? So hard, isn't it? But when, while I cannot promise you how the presence of the Holy Spirit will be experienced in your life, I can assure you that you will experience him if you do these four things. And if you're not feeling it, I've not read anything in Scripture that promises that you'll get a certain feeling from the way you do it. I guess what I'm asking you to do is the same thing I expect and ask of myself is to pursue after God with a steady integrity even if your reality does not look the way you would wish it and you don't know what God's doing in your life and what things will look like in a short or long order. But wait Wait with integrity, and you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what it'll look like, and I can't talk about this long because I love this so much. You'll hear it. You know what it'll look like. It may not look like all of your hopes and dreams, you know, like Napoleon Dynamite. Just follow your heart, and all your wildest dreams will come true, you know. But it'll look like this. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in goodness, in faithfulness, and isn't it interesting, gentleness, gentleness, and self-control. And while you may not have the house you want, the girl you want, the guy you want, all these things may not be there. They may or may not. I can't promise you either way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control sounds pretty good to me. And you know what Paul says? Against such there is no law. You know what he means by that? Everybody wants it. And they're rushing to find it in all the wrong places. Acknowledgement of sin. (laughs) Heart of repentance. Self-denial. Undistracted seeking after God. That's how we find God. Through the power of his Holy Spirit. Which Jesus told us through his disciples and through the miracle of the preservation of Holy Scripture is better for us to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us than the person of Jesus in person. And we have it. And we can experience it. Now. But that's just one side of the sermon. i got to go quicker now. So here it is. We not only experience the power of the Holy Spirit through individual, on the individual level, because we are humans in the image of God, created to have the empowerment and indwelling of God himself, but we also have something else that's unbelievably beautiful. Unbelievably beautiful. 
It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so all you have to do is turn a page. Page 925. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to see something really important. Do you... Now, this you, you don't see in English. Uh, This you is plural. It's not a singular plural like you, Bill. It is a, you know, plural. I guess the Southerners have a little hand up on this. This is a y'all, right? Don't you all know that you all, plural, are God's temple? Not the individual, the church. And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together, you see it there, right? And you together, all of you, are that temple. My one professor in Dallas Seminary, I do remember his name, Stanley Toussaint. He was 80 at the time, and I think he's still alive, and he had a comb over. Um, He's always, and he was this unbelievable professor, you know? Everybody loved him. And I remember him one day in class, bent over, and he always bent. Actually, he was kind of permanently bent at this point. He bent over and he says, do you know what this is saying? Do you know what this is saying? That God loves his church so much that if those in the church tried to destroy it, God is saying somehow he's going to destroy them. And I remember thinking, yeah, he does love his church a lot, doesn't he? Because we are all together. I know this sounds crazy. We all together are making up the dwelling place of God. Together we make up the dwelling place of God. That in this room, as we gather to acknowledge, because this is what church is, an expanding group of people that believe that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming again, Son of God, right? As we gather to affirm and commit ourselves to Him, the Holy Spirit dwells in our midst, right? And the presence of the Spirit of God in our midst is something that is progressively happening. Now, why do I say that? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and this is going to be quick. Ephesians chapter 2, page 948, verses 21 and 22. And see what Paul says in another letter to another church, the same author. In him, the whole building, he's talking about the church metaphorically, the church being built up into a building, metaphorically, a body. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now, it sounds so much easier to me in so many ways to be a dwelling place of God individually, but how do we become a dwelling place of God corporately? There's so many barriers to this, isn't there? There's our own sinfulness, for one, where we treat each other poorly. There is the differences that we all have, you know, differences of race and economics and background and denomination. We're all so different, right? Paul talks about all these differences in Ephesians 2. We're not going to read the whole passage, but his whole point here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Christ in his death and resurrection has reconciled two very different people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he is making them into one body, a body that makes up his church. There's all kinds of barriers. That's why the death of Christ is such a powerful working element. 
It is, according to Paul, meant to be such a powerful element, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that no matter how we are different in background, socioeconomics, politics, uh, race, age, we are meant to be unified around the, t- the reality, not the teaching, the reality, that Jesus really was the Son of God who died and rose from the dead. Excuse me. Died and rose from the dead. The plan for all of this As we see in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, the plan for all of what Jesus has done is not just to save you individually so you can go to heaven when you die. It is not less than that, but it's more than that. The plan has always been to create a unique and a diverse and a unified body that exemplifies and shares the kingdom of God, the reality of God on earth as it is in heaven. And one day when Christ returns, that reality will be complete and full. But until that day, we who make up the church are to show forth that reality here on earth, right here and right now. That's the plan. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, and you don't even have to turn the page, tells us how to do it. And it's in the near context. And I am convinced Because chapter 3 does not move away. It does not move away thematically from what he's talking about Ephesians chapter 2. And so Ephesians chapter 4 picks up applicationally what Paul has said abstractly, that we are to be one body. And now Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 tells us how to do it. And here's what he says. As a prisoner for the Lord, verse 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is this calling? (laughs) following after Christ, both individually and corporately, a unified, diverse body. How do you do it? Verse 2. This is so beautiful, isn't it? Be completely humble and gentle. Doesn't this sound like the fruit of the Spirit? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so how do we do this? This is just how I think of it. And this is now my language. I think it's language that grows out of Ephesians chapter 4. But it's here. It's how I think of it working in reality. And it's how I try to make it work in my own life. Imagine what our church would look like if we lived out Ephesians chapter 4. And we can do this in three ways. Where we were authentic in our atmosphere. Where we created an atmosphere of authentic openness and transparency. Where you could come to church and you could be accepted just as you are. But yet, you're pushed to be more than you are now, right? We are accepted just as we are before God. But doesn't God love us too much to leave us the way we are? Isn't this the whole point of what Jesus did? I love you now. I die for you so your sins can be forgiven so you do not stay where you are. Openness and transparency. It is okay to be where we are, but don't we want to move towards health? And from a Christian standpoint, don't we want to move to be more like Christ? It is okay that your life does not look like Christ in certain areas for right now. We don't have to make ourselves look a certain way to be accepted at church. But church is the slow process where we find people who are open and accepting of us, but who love us too much to leave us the way we are. 
but this doesn't work very good if some random stranger comes up and says, I've got a ruler, your shorts are too short, right? This works really good if there's people who you know who love you, love your kids, go to your soccer games with your kids, who sit with you and you go to their house and you have dinner and you get to know each other. I can't be that for all of you. I can only be that for a small portion of you. But it's, it's something that you have the power to do for each other. What would our church look like if we created an atmosphere of openness and transparency where everybody can be where they are, but the goal is not to look more like Bill or to look more like Billy Bob, but to look more like Jesus? And the way you think Jesus looks is a pretty important thing, isn't it? And I'm sure the church, in a lot of ways, has gotten that visual wrong a lot of times. Love, joy, peace, right? Second thing, what if our church was a place of respect? A place where we can share about ourselves without having to worry that people are going to look down on us or give us an advice in a belittling way. What if it was a place of respect and authenticity and trust? And what do I mean by trust? I mean an atmosphere where we truly believe that every person in our church had not an agenda at their heart, but our best interest in mind. Isn't this what love is? When I say I love my wife, what do I mean? What I hope I mean, you know? I hope I mean like Ephesians chapter 5, that I put her interest above my own, just as Christ put my interest above himself. Right? And by the way, Ephesians chapter 5 We're both supposed to love and respect each other this way in marriage, right? Love and respect. Authenticity, respect, and trust. If we do these things, we will not only experience the power corporately, but we have the potential to experience him individually. And on this Pentecost Sunday, I know I've said a lot of things, What I long for you, and I long it for myself as much as for you, I long for us to follow in the path of the Spirit of God and to be transformed by his love and his beauty. And so let me pray that it might be so. Heavenly Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us through the power of your Spirit and our inner being so that in Christ we may dwell in our, your heart so that through Christ we may dwell in your, hearts through faith, in your heart through faith. And I pray that you will establish us and root us in love, that you will give us the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ, that we may know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, And so we pray to you, asking and begging that you will do so in our lives, believing that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, so that the glory in the church might be to Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.